0: So I'm actually a tad nervous because I just realized I never actually cleared this with my <laughs> Patreon subscribers to see if they'd be okay with this necessarily, but uh, I figured there should be a free episode periodically in this series to promote its existence and all that to all the people that are outside of the Patreon ecosystem to know that this is happening. Hey guys, welcome to the Q&A series. This is a series I do on a weekly basis for Patreon and here episode 25 I'm putting out publicly so that it can you know be a known thing so that, so this is 25 of uh episodes that are like 90 to 120 minutes ish on average uh so there's a backlog at this point no it didn't take me that long to get only to level 34 uh, in modern world of warcraft uh the first half of the series was diablo 2 until i switched for reasons that it would become apparent if you t- if you saw uh, <laughs> that was a mess uh So this is just a thing where I take uh, questions from my Patreon and I just kind of ramble podcast style. This kind of is my podcast, my solo podcast, now that all of my other podcasts have systematically failed. Uh, And the most recent one being that Andrew moved and we could eventually, we could sometimes do a Skype call here and there. Uh, Wow, I reflexively say Skype even though I've never used Skype for that purpose really. Uh, discord call which we've done twice now but it's a it's infrequent i don't have the weekly podcast i used to have and all that so this is kind of replacing that but only for patrons which is not was not the plan i wanted to do both at the same time but then andrew moved it was it was unrelated uh and if you're wondering why now uh this is actually going to be almost immediately apparent why this particular episode is going to be the public one and not the private patreon one when we get to our first question. (laughs) So Levicron asks, What are your thoughts on Article 13 of the European Copyright Directive, which passed through Parliament recently? If these changes were to be finalized, it looks as though, to protect themselves, YouTube would likely apply extremely aggressive copyright filters to users in Europe, as well as to European content like games from developers such as CD Projekt, Daudelic, Quantic Dream, Do you think this is likely just another SOPA slash PIPA type affair that which ultimately never materializes? If it were to come into effect, what percentage of your audience typically reside in Europe and would not be able to watch a majority of your content without the use of a VPN? Uh, Let's go ahead and just get to the stats right away because I've prepped them. I did prep time. Ha ha. Ta-da. So that's my stats for the last 30 days. Well, 28 days, I guess. I don't know why it's on 28 usually it's 30 i think that's my population breakdown of uh my viewership by country as you can tell the sense that they have the check marks next to them the ones that are from the eu are uh, a lot of the top ones that said none of the countries make up a huge percentage of my viewership except the united states which is very large like that's that that right there is the 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 uk and the united states is Seven times as large. So, as long as I have my United States viewership at the bare minimum, I'm not totally sunk because they're like half of the, my viewership. Uh, but yeah, collectively, the EU makes up, uh, I think, more than 25% of my viewership. And that's not great news overall. Uh, admittedly, this is a confusing gray area. I've heard that at the, at the moment, UK is still affected by this kind of decision. But You know there's a whole thing happening with the british people and the european union that has muddied the waters there and so on but that's the vague breakdown basically uh the uk today makes up eight percent of my population seven percent is germany and then there's a bunch of other little pie slices that'll make them eventually add up to about like 26 percent or something like that so very much not good news basically so if you're not caught up uh, on this subject first of all i heavily encourage you to do additional research because i'm just going to be going off the top of my head for the most part this is not a video essay uh also well, that's one of the things that are threatened haha uh-huh. uh it's it's not good news <laughs> so basically they're trying to create a system that will protect copyright holders so that people will be adequately compensated for use of their materials and it protects people and artists and so on and it's all actually like a very reasonable plan not plan it's a very reasonable idea and desire but the way they're going about it is incomprehensibly confusing and misguided and largely just points at this idea that like oh right they uh they kind of just don't know anything about modern world the modern internet or anything about that and that makes sense because a bunch of old politicians that make up the EU members it's not the greatest people to be citing how internet policy policy should be working uh it also gets into a lot of international messes where we don't really know what to think about a lot of these elements because they basically the, the biggest change that's happening right now is that as it exists right now if you upload copyright content to the internet to youtube and so on uh the id system will match the fact that said content is uh you know, is a match as the, the content ID system you always hear about, and so on. And basically, the onus is on the two people involved. Like the YouTube kind of is uninvolved, and they f- just facilitate the matching system and putting these people in touch with each other, so that the copyright holder is aware. Of their copyright being potentially infringed upon, and then that copyright holder can send a takedown notice to have the video taken down, or they can enter revenue sharing, or even claiming where they either take away the money, they take away the ad revenue from the person that uh, that made the video, which is the thing I constantly deal with, or they share the revenue, which sometimes happens but not very often, or they just block the revenue and and so on. Like there's a bunch of different things you can do. Between that are a spectrum from like blocking the content entirely to claiming the ad revenue from the content. And it's all clumsy and it's all frustrating. And if you if you if you know about fair use and so on, at least in the United States, it's kind of a mess even in its current form, in how like the copyright holder has such priority that they can just claim your content and just hold on to it, even if you are doing something that falls under fair use. And even if you don't think Let's Plays fall under fair use, video essays Like really, definitely do because they fit the textbook definition of like the premise of fair use. And those people constantly have to deal with the fact that like people will just claim their content, and then and then when you're like, wait, hang on, this is a video essay. This is fair use. Like I'm doing this is commentary and analysis and critique. They're like, nah, because they can just say no when you appeal to when you appeal with the the facts about the thing uh that's a whole mess and then there's also the whole fun thing where like people will like upload their let's play th- their let's plays will then get fall under like a a multi-channel network and the multi-channel network will be like hey all this content belongs to this let's this let's player i'm like no it doesn't they're they're playing a video game they're like yeah we're gonna claim everyone who ever played this game i'm like they didn't make the Game, you can't even, they don't own the game. Like that happened with me with Jacksepticeye. I got videos claimed and blocked and so on because Jacksepticeye did something with the network, and the network was like, Yeah, Jacksepticeye owns all the content in these videos, right? I'm like, No, he's talking over the thing. It's like the current system is a mess and does need revising, but this current thing that's happening is actually not really a revise of that. It's just an additional new problem that we get to deal with. Uh, And I would definitely take the old system over the new here. Uh, Basically, they're just saying, you know what we're going to do is instead of the YouTube uh, being just a mediator and the people being responsible, because as it is right now, the person who uploads copyright content is the one that's responsible for said content. So if it does go like what like what what happens when you dispute a copyright claim on YouTube is that you get this very long thing where they have like 30 days to respond and then then they can be like nah and then you can then take them to court like that's literally like what YouTube says to do next like YouTube is like well if you uh if you guys can't figure this out i guess you're going to have to resolve it with through legal means and i'm like shit that escalated quickly which is why a lot of YouTubers are afraid to dispute uh copyright things after the first little like please which is the our first tool uh because the next step is supposed to take what's often a larger company or even a company at all compared to us to the courts in order to prove our uh, our rights and so on but the upside of that is that if the onus falls on us then at least that means that the platform itself isn't constantly filtering and censoring everything, because what's happening now is that Article 13 is like it's claiming that websites like YouTube that host content, those guys are the ones that are responsible for all the copyright content on their website, and they're the ones I keep, keep trying to cut these bodies up. Uh, those are the ones that need to be held responsible. Those are the ones that need to those are the ones that are liable if somebody's mad their copyright's being infringed on their platform, which is kind of a problem when you have something like YouTube, which, uh, you know, has like a million hours of content uploaded every hour or something absurd like that. Like the num- every time they say the number, it's impossible to remember because it's so like catastrophically Lovecraftian scale and it's incomprehensibility of like the n- mass of content being uploaded at all times. And so this is a... Uh, There's actually somebody put a I'll probably link this in the at the end of the video as like a title card. Some of the videos I I was referencing, but someone actually made the good point of like when they when they went to the YouTube HQ years ago and they filmed on HQ uh, on HQ campus on YouTube campus they had to like fill out forms to prove that they had legal rights to the people in the videos, any content used in the video, the logos on their shirts and so on because the moment it was physically on YouTube campus that was when suddenly uh YouTube was like well it's here so now we're liable for the copyright content of this video so even though you're an independent YouTuber because you made a video at RHQ you we have you have to prove you own the rights to every single element of said video uh or or you you, you can't use it and they ultimately put it through the legal team and then uh to like it passed to the YouTube legal team to try to tell whether or not they were allowed to upload it ultimately and after they signed all the forms and filled out everything and then they were denied and they didn't get to use the video like that's that's kind of The restrictiveness that happens when you instead of making it so that youtube's just a mediator make youtube directly liable for all of the content on its entire website is that that's just going to mean that youtube has to manually police everything which basically means everyone's fucked uh like independent creators won't get their content Not only will they probably not get their content approved, they probably won't even get their content reviewed, like even looked at, because there's so there's so much content that has to be manually policed and not just like at a glance, like people being like, oh, like, like the current system when they talk about, like, is it advertiser safe is like a person can kind of just you can just hire random people to kind of like glance through it and kind of be a judge. And, you know, and that's that's kind of what they do uh like a lot of like when it comes to uh policing adult content on facebook and youtube and stuff like that a lot of these companies just hire somebody from like a like india like just actually just a lot of people from india to manually check through all the content and see if it's like is there boobs in this is there gore in this and stuff like that uh and that generally it works but my impression is that if you need to physically if you have to prove rights to absolutely everything in a video that requires a manual review from somebody that actually knows what they're talking about and is trained and is maybe even skilled labor themselves and like there's a whole process to that and so like youtube would probably only be willing to work with the companies like cable companies talk shows all those other people that actually just have their own teams that vet all this stuff and so big companies that are feeding content in and out of the eu are probably going to be fine but all the actual content creators that are the basis of you know youtube as a platform basically might be totally sunk and uh this is not i mean i would love for this thing to blow over and be like a whole joke and everything but like i so far like we have like the heads of youtube coming out and saying like yeah we're gonna basically have to treat youtube uh, we're gonna have to treat eu as like a, a bubble where all the rules change and like content can't come in or out v- unless it's very specifically and carefully mediated. Because if they just let the content come in and out at whatever rate, then like that's, I, if it's not if it's not regulated, then every single piece of copyright content there now now YouTube's liable for it, and that's not something that they're going to be willing to go through. So it's bad. It's bad for viewers in the EU, and it's even worse for. Uh, content creators in the EU, because viewers are most likely going to have an incredibly filtered version of this. What is basically a large portal of the internet. Like entire chunks of the internet are going to be heavily regulated, and you're, you're going to find that you just can't access the kind of content you used to, unless it's through like vaguely illicit means, or maybe VPNs will work out or stuff like that. But like for a lot of people, like a lot of stuff's going to be blocked, which is not great for like flowing the flowing of information and so on like that's kind of worrying when it comes to like how how news and culture and information flows on the internet to have entire chunks of the world just have it cut off and censored and so on that that's it's hard not to think a little bit of like China and North Korea a little bit with elements of that and it's not as severe but it's certainly worse than what was already here uh yeah viewers are likely going to have a completely filtered version because they're it's it's it, it this And the system's already in place. Like, whenever I get a copyright claim on a video... The vast, vast majority of the time nowadays... All of that happens is it just says, hey... You don't get the money for this one. I'm like, thanks. It's a good thing I have 10,000 videos. Because this happens all the time. Uh, but the much worse the thing is that i can tag and see like if a thing gets blocked in a particular country for its music or whatever like what happened with part one of quadrilateral cowboy or part one of uru and stuff like that it'll be like this one this video is blocked in germany and denmark and australia or whatever like it'll have a list of countries that it's blocking it in so youtube already is equipped to block videos in specific regions while allowing it to be viewed everywhere else and so it'll be if they have to do this, it'll actually be very easy to just flip the switch and be like, yeah, all this content that's not carefully vetted, like Netflix or something, uh, all the stuff that hasn't been manually reviewed, it's just not available in any of the EU member sta- member countries anymore. And they could just do that, and it'd be very easy to implement ultimately. And then they'd have to have like a manual flagging system of like which stuff is exempted ex- exempted from that block, basically, which would likely just be like bbc and uh, like any content related to that and so on uh it's a it's a real not good look as far as members of when i talked about like members of the eu as in like content creators that live there uh it's not great because (laughs) uh as it is right now like you you have to based on the the text they have so far which admittedly this is a weird in-between state like this is basically already happening this has basically already been approved it's basically already supposed to happen and they're just nailing down the exact language of it which, which means that it's kind of already going on uh that the enormous? that is the enormous kill the enormous uh when I talk about content creators within the country itself like they have to under this text they have to basically be able to prove that they f- actually own the rights to every single piece of content featured in the entire thing uh so, which means fair use doesn't apply Noth- nothing none of that matters it, it doesn't matter if you're being transformative or any other elements uh, it doesn't matter if it's critique it doesn't matter if it's commentary in particular i'm really bothered by the fact that like like i create let's play sure which are which are this but the primary content i uh that i consume on youtube is not let's plays it's video essays which you will quickly realize if you watch my keith's recommended videos playlist which is like 400 videos long now but it's they're almost exclusively video essays uh and that is also a form of content that is heavily heavily going to be impacted by this kind of regulation if it is uh meted out in the way that it's being said to uh but if you if you live within the EU, like you, I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, it, uh, they'll likely block you from uploading absolutely anything that has any kind of content in it that might be copyright on any level. Uh, if you have if 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 they can find even a hint of it anywhere in your video, you'll probably be blocked. Although if they might even go more severe because they might not fully trust their own content id system to fully catch everything so they might just block people from those countries from uploading to youtube at all because they can't verify that their content is actually safe for their website and because youtube's liable for everything they do the moment that youtube's liable for everything is the moment where all this content then has to be manually reviewed by experts because they don't want to be held liable uh, which is why like yeah it'd probably just be like the BBC and other companies that are trusted by YouTube and maybe certain very large YouTubers uh, that have a certain amount of clout might be able to like set up a meeting with YouTube and have a particular like agreement about what they are allowed to and not allowed to show in their videos and agree to proceed accordingly and then maybe those people will be able to move forward but a lot lar- I imagine that a large number of YouTubers will just maybe just vanish overnight uh, youtubers that want to work around this system i would imagine would probably end up moving to uh the united states as like there's so many there's already so many english and european uh youtubers that end up moving to the united states specifically los angeles and so that's only going to further increase that glut of all that all youtubers moving to los angeles all the time. But uh, you, if you have to work, you'd probably get. You'd probably want to try to look into getting a work visa to work on work for YouTube content in the United States, which is further like we're talking about this constant, this constant thing of like what people can af- afford to do. It creates an in inequal- an, an, an inequality that is kind of against one of the appeals of internet content: is that there's a democratization of all this. There's a low point of entry. Like one of the struggles of making a let's play channel for example is that the it's the how do I put this the what I do has a very low barrier for entry the technology is easy to access the equipment is easy to access a microphone's easy to buy the internet is universal and accessible anyone can basically do what I'm doing at least in like the textbook version of that like they can fiddle the quali- they can make this kind of video The commentary style the personality the uh being willing to stick with it for years and years until you actually make it somewhere all those other elements that eventually lead to how i got here and so on that's all a bit different but the actual like building blocks the basic elements of this are very democratized and accessible and every like it's there's a there's a very low barrier for entry and this is an example of that kind of going away and this is the thing that keeps happening and it was kind of related to SOPA and other elements too, but just the, on a regular basis, there's more and more regulatory elements and more and more competitive elements that kind of squash lower-end users and and uh, make it harder for them to compete or have a chance to do what they want to do as larger channels, basically, as, as, a, as larger people that have more resources basically still get to thrive. And this would be an example of that because there's people who might be looking to be on youtube now but they maybe have like a thousand subscribers or a hundred subscribers and there's not even it's not even vaguely sustainable but they're doing it as like a hobby and maybe it'll go somewhere sometime and maybe one day they might be one of the future people that has millions of subscribers and is actually kind of a memorable tentpole of the society uh, i mean of the community uh but they're going to potentially be squashed if this goes this way because they just won't be able to make content youtube will just not allow their content on their website and they won't be afford and they won't be able to afford the kind of mobility that other youtubers might be able to afford as part of their job like the idea of just oh well this country's not supporting this job anymore i'll just move countries like that kind of stuff is often not entirely fair i don't know if i was actually supposed to follow this guy but i just kind of want to see where he's going now because i think because i kind of made him (laughs) look at him go So it's uh it's plenty scary and some of the stuff hasn't really materialized and some of it has. But this is this is really specifically being put in place by the EU where all member states have to would have to incorporate into their laws within a year or two. And like that's that's pretty explicit Uh, whether or not they it gets hobbled or dampened in some way is hard to say and whether or not they deliberately pull back. And yeah, there's the idea that there's maybe it'll be such a minor change that no one even notices, or maybe it'll be so drastic that it fundamentally changes the landscape of the internet for a while. Or maybe we even hit a point where it, maybe they'll even re- realize they're mistaken, pull back, and and rewrite or or undo this entire change. I I don't know what the future holds, but what they're saying it is if you take it if you take the, their the actual terms at their face. It's really worrying. I think this is somebody else's quest. Like, they're just stacking now because MMOs. You're unique in an MMO. Look how unique I am and special, as my quest mo- monstrosity is doubling up on another person's quest monstrosity. <laughs> so it's uh, it's worrying. Ah, uh, what was what else was I gonna? I had another thought in mind. And I'm trying to. I lost I lost my segue to a thought I was thinking about. Uh, going back to the original question i actually didn't think about that until you brought it up which is the idea of them regulating everybody that makes content on games from the eu like that's a whole thing to think about that i didn't really consider and i don't know what form that would take like what does happen if the game itself originates from the eu does it become content that you can't create content about anymore i'm actually not altogether sure like if they sell that if they sell that content in the united states then this is this is where you hit the limits on on my awareness and capabilities and what you need to where you start needing to refer to actual experts on some of the stuff is i like i get the feeling that if you sell something in the united states that once it's being sold here and it's made its way here then it's based on the, our laws at that point, I would imagine, but I don't know. I Need a drink. Talk too long without drinking again. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know, because I would imagine that if a product reaches here, then its then its uses are subject subjected to our laws as opposed to its origin country laws. But I don't really. Have an answer there, especially once since the internet makes everything more confusing uh, but yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe content from Quantic Dream and CD Project Red and so on and today might be uh, ripped off of everyone's YouTube channels all of a sudden, which would be a real bummer because that's a lot of uh, that's hundreds of videos <laughs> that's not an inc- like uh, yeah EU countries. That's not. let let me let me double check something. Actually, uh, I'm just double checking some countries here. I want to be sure about this. The CD project. yeah they are polish that's what i thought yeah and poland is in the eu i was double checking that because i was i get a little more confused the closer you get to russia about which ones are in the eu and so on like i like i was thinking in the back of my head like if that did happen would i be allowed to cover stalker and stuff like that or that list or like do do various Eurojank things that i'm thinking of covering because that's they're always amusing. Do they just go away? Can I not cover Stalker? Can I not cover <clears throat> Gothic? Do I lose my Do I lose all of my existing videos on Pathologic and Elex? Do I lose my ability to cover Pathologic 2 and so on? Uh I'd probably lose thousands of videos if everyone from Europe was not applicable. But that's a way muddier thing. And uh I have not heard anyone Talking from any sort of expert perspective, and cl- cl- and making that kind of claim, I'd be interested in knowing the source of why y- you're bringing that up, and wh- or if it's just a connection because, like, you know, they're from the EU, so that's how it works. But I don't know. That's that's attacking the question from a whole different direction that I don't actually know what to say about. Uh, but yeah, if uh, it, aside from that concern of content just vanishing, uh, which man if that kind of thing happens you'd have to like you you definitely would have to like manually research the origin country of every single game you ever play and try to tell what things are from and you might not cover certain games because the company isn't sufficiently transparent about its country of origin or something like that because that kind of stuff could be the kind of stuff that gets you into like legal trouble and whatnot. yeah that's not fun to think about on on top of everything else Uh, as far as how i would do financially it's almost impossible to tell in part because of the fact that it's really like the the basic elements of how this whole thing will be implemented are still uncertain but looking like if we just go with the idea of like oh what if all of the eu just gets shaved off of my uh my my YouTube and then uh, by extension probably my Patreon since who's going to support a, the Patreon of a channel they can't watch. Uh, it's hard to say, but if I just go with twenty five percent lost, it it would essentially involve just undoing all the progress that was made over the last few months, where I had the big Patreon push and made progress and so on, uh, which is all the more reason for me to make a public uh, Q video promoting the series. So, yeah, let's do a little plug here. If you like if you like the idea of getting this kind of video every week, uh please consider supporting me for a dollar or more on Patreon every month cuz that's how oh, that this is the this Q&A is in the bare minimum tier along with voting on the next Patreon game. This was me trying to make a more useful more consistent thing on the patreon because the, the voting can happen once every two weeks or it can happen once every three months or something based on how long the game is that's chosen so if i do a QA series on the patreon there's consistent content that's patreon exclusive that makes the value of supporting on patreon more significant in a different way in addition to credits which some people care about and some people super don't and so on because uh, there's the credits at the end of the videos and so on that's what this is and uh i should It's it's just as a basic self-preservation thing, I should definitely promote this because I don't know what the future holds. Uh, And yeah, like I... Having all the progress I made over the last few months on my Patreon get kind of taken away by losing 25%-ish of my Patreon and YouTube support would be a real bummer, especially since I just moved and increased my costs because that was kind of the point is to improve quality of life and working uh, environment by getting patreon support like that's the point of having a job and so on more or less Uh, so that's not great news i think the main solace i cling to on this subject is the fact that is the idea of it potentially taking years for them to incorporate this change so if they do take years to incorporate it that's that gives me more time to grow and my my audience and support has always grown linearly to exponentially it's always i've been making good progress generally speaking so if this does happen and i have to say goodbye to a huge chunk of my audience uh it will hopefully happen far enough from now that i have time to grow by more than i lose i hope But that's really hard to say, especially since it's hard to say if like YouTube will just panic immediately and start making changes the moment that it's passed and finalized as opposed to waiting for individual countries. Although given the financial incentive of being able to make money uh, in the meantime, I would imagine that they would probably hold out on making changes on a country by country basis as long as possible until each individual country finalizes their individual laws on the subject. Because they, in the meantime, they can keep making money off of the viewers of said country. So hopefully it would be a slower and slightly more gradual catastrophic change. But yeah, between this and global warming and a few other things, it's really fun to think about the future lately. Yay. What I've got to do is I've just got to be massively ultra, ultra famous and make my mega bunker where I can just have infinite food and resources and be safe from all changes to the environment or the economy, and I'll just be one of those stereotypical uh rich people that just 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 rips them away from, themselves away from society and then doesn't care anymore about the downfall. And then I'll die from the plague, like in that Ed, growl and poe story, where all the rich people lock themselves off from society and uh then they all died anyway. Whoops. Da 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 I don't know where this question mark is. Is he inside the building or outside the building? Uh, I can just run around and kill people until I find him, I guess. But yeah. Yay. Uh, Article 13. If you know, Oh, there he is. If you know about it a lot, uh, please talk about it in the description and share information with other people and have nice long conversations about this and if you're just hearing about this now and you're in the EU which are actually affected by this then uh, you've been slacking a bit and should have probably heard about this from all the people yelling about it but also isn't that fun to think about the idea of people making massive changes to the world around you without uh, you finding out about it along the way doesn't that make it feel like you're being fairly represented when that kind of stuff happens and you don't even get to find out about it. I, where are these schematics? Uh, yay. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any other subject I need to c- cover on this subject because I a lot of it's a lot of it's out of my hands unfortunately and maybe I should have talked about this sooner, but also I don't there's not much I can do about it. Even the people that I promote this too, can't do much about it and the largest uh the largest channels have largely already covered it so a lot of you hopefully already know about this and aren't just hearing about this for the first time now there's the schematics but as far as resources i know that even youtube has one where it's uh youtube.com save your internet and the, the, you can look up like the hashtag save your internet and so on to try to get more information about this Uh, This definitely feels like it's worse than the other times where it didn't necessarily pan out. And it's concerning. Although on its surface, it doesn't directly affect me and my country. Uh, It just means losing audience members from other countries. But the internet is so awkward. The the internet is so universal and non-universal. And it's like, it's every individual culture... Separately and together, so like there's all these weird things where one country's decisions can feel like it affects everybody else's. It's kind of like how you hear about like fair use and so on, want to support content that I make and that other people will make. But fair use as a concept is American, so like a lot of these other countries, like if you're not if you're not American, the question of whether or not that kind of idea even protects you goes further. Like you need to look into your own particular countries and yet implementation globally has just been eh fair use. It's just a thing, right? Like it's it's treated like it's a thing that everybody somehow has, even though it's actually a particular country's concept. And maybe that is because many, many, many internet companies like Imager and Reddit and YouTube, I believe, and so on and Facebook are all American. So maybe since they're based in the United States that's the that's the main policy that matters and maybe that's why somehow a united states law starts to feel like it's some kind of universal world law but it speaks to how the policies of one country can kind of bleed throughout the world and and make their way around so it'd, it'd be a little worrying to find out that maybe this eu policy might start affecting other countries outside of even the eu and so on uh and that whole mess and there's the if you think about it this is what large media companies want like they want more restrictions on the internet because the the democratization of the internet and the fact that so many people can just do this like you you guys you can do it right now you can just make a let's play channel right now just like i have and functionally it'll be the same as far as like content goes and everything like that uh this microphone is not expensive it's the at2020 usb on Amazon. Uh, i don't know if they make it anymore i think they might have replaced it with a new model now or something but like this is not expensive before this i used a snowball which was also significantly not expensive both of them are often on sale for half price obs is a free program my elgato is admittedly not cheap but it's not expensive either uh and you can frankly start a channel without doing console capture anyway in fact uh bird still after all these years does not feature does not have a console capture card his only console game on his channel uh is super smash brothers which he has because i he's just uploading my footage on his channel (laughs) like i just gave him the footage i'm like here you go Uh, uh, because we're playing together but he can't record it uh like, you don't need to be able to record consoles. You could just get a microphone and, and a decent computer and go. And many of you already have that, fir- that second step, and maybe even the first step for other reasons, out of the way. Uh, like, that low barrier for entry has always been one of the beautiful things about the internet. And that's threatening. It's very threatening to large media companies that, like, some random asshole can make a video in his room where he talks about the news for example and then over the course of years becomes you know what philip defranco is right now and like that's all a thing that exists completely outside of the previously established ecosystem and like that's like let's players just are people that just play video games and make voices and say things and so on and do what i'm doing or or things utterly different from what i'm doing and then people just decide to watch them and just because by the virtue of that, hey, people are watching this, it then has an intrinsic value that then generates money because of the viewership itself. Because if there's views, there's money. Uh, and that is all threatening to large companies that had a stranglehold on how the system works and don't want subversions of their system. And so these kinds of people will absolutely just just like how they went after uh trying to police the internet and trying to go after Netflix and trying to affect uh, the flow of the internet and the and uh, and the free internet they'll they'll also make these kinds of approaches where they try to lobby for these kinds of changes to happen and they're very, very powerful rich companies that have the resources to look into lobbying entire countries to make certain choices. So this these kinds of things that squelch, Anyone that doesn't have the resources to fight it are just another thing that can reverse the progress that the Internet's essentially made. And that's just a huge bummer. I also have no idea where these these shells are I'm supposed to be going after. So that's not going well. (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's all doom and gloom. And hopefully it's all a fluke somehow. uh, Or hopefully if it does go bad, I have time to outrun it a little bit. (laughs) And not be totally uh damaged by this, I will say that i I habitually don't spend money out of a vague fear because I don't have uh the most massive faith in myself and my ability to function as an adult with like taxes and like medical insurance and car payments and all this other stuff like i'm still even though i've been doing it for a while it's it just vaguely makes me nervous so because I don't want everything to collapse around me I constantly am just careful enough with my money and oh there we are that uh I may have enough saved to kind of make things work out I'm not I'm not like I am I'm very careful not to be going month to month when I do things like uh uh-oh uh-oh. <laughs> this place is going to blow up. You better get to the exit. Immediately get stunned by Guy. That was not a good... That was not a very long jump. Running, running, running. Running, running, running. Uh, <laughs> this is oddly tense. Almost like the topic I've been talking about. Oh, cool. That's me dying because I didn't escape. Probably. Oh, cutscene. Never mind. Yeah, it's, it's me running away from Article 13. Thematically consistent imagery. Look, it's the EU burning down. It's all on fire. The memes. The memes are running out. Burning. Go back. My baby's still in there. That got got dark. I, uh... (laughs) I don't fucking know. Uh... But yeah when i make the, when i make scary changes like increasing my rent by moving to a better location i'm generally being careful and not just like being like well i have slightly more money i better immediately just fucking pedal to the metal and you spend all of it uh i'm always paranoid that this entire thing is going to come crashing down uh as as far as my financial situation goes so i'm careful with my choices and moves and all that so uh I'd probably have if my if I suddenly was in the red and making negative money, like my like my money my income dropped to below my uh, expenses. For example, for a while, uh, I'm I have like some cushion probably where that would basically be like my account dren- like tr- trending down for a bit, but I wouldn't be immediately doomed because I've made somewhat reasonable financial choices and so on there's also been the just the ongoing thing where like the growth of my channel and the growth of my youtube and my patreon are not of a sufficient scale where i can like just make the leap to be like I have my own apartment or in, in this state because the state's so fucking expensive or I'm ready to move to like Seattle or something and hang out with the Brian J and Bird which I realized both live in Seattle and that sounds cool because uh, also Seattle's expensive so I'm not since I'm not ready to make the big leaps this leap this uh, upgrade I did by moving is an upgrade and it is more expensive but it's not the 100% of what I'm currently financially capable of it's more like it was something that I could do, but I'm the the point of moving forward is to make progress until like I can, you know, have my own place ultimately where this is an intermediate step because I could afford it, uh, I'm trying to articulate why I even brought this up. <laughs> uh, how do I put this? So yeah, what I was trying to get at is that there's a, that's a side effect of being in these kind of intermediate states where my income grows above the exact cost of my current living situation, but is not high enough for like the next step I'm trying to make it to, is that the I can kind of start to save whatever the the balance there is, the the in between, and so like those kinds of in betweens uh, stack up, and that that helps me have a cushion if something goes wrong, like these kinds of things, and it also eventually leads to me making uh, monetary like leads to me making not like permanent living situation upgrades or more like but more like uh actual like hardware upgrades or things that i change about what i can do like an example of that being that like i have that milestone on patreon i'm like hey if we hit two if we hit two grand a month i'm gonna get it i'm gonna get an htc vive and maybe even also a psvr or something like i'll just dive into like okay now we can cover vr content let's look at that next cyan games project looks like let's look at all those those uh vr escape rooms let's look at uh from software from software made a vr game only i think i think it's a vr exclusive games on game on ps4 like that kind of stuff uh those are the kinds of changes that I can look into doing in the meantime, because my income can't support the next big leap that I want to go to for in my uh, living situation. But I have like a, a I have this margin, and that margin can then go towards projects like that, like getting a Vive and stuff like that. Which uh, I'm still working on unpacking and the amount of space I have around my environment. But uh, once I get this cleared out properly and all these excess excess ex- 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 bags of clothes and crap that uh made the move that haven't been sorted through properly uh then i'll have like a about like a six by six open area in this room like i I think i can lay down in both directions which is amazing uh and with that amount of space cleared out that would mean that i can cover room scale vr potentially like not just like sitting facing a computer and having a vr headset on but actually like walking around within a limited space and stuff like that like that's those are the kind of changes i can hopefully make and i hope that my eu audience members will still be around to see it uh yeah i don't know what's gonna happen uh if this is a good if you are if this if you're in the affected country you are extra incentivized to do the available uh like look into the available research find out what you can about what's going on find out how much this stuff matters to you uh dive down because this is affecting your internet and if you're the kind of person who will watch a two-hour q a video of your let's let's player on the internet you're probably someone who kind of likes watching internet content and this might have a direct effect on uh how you consume content which is both your entertainment and on one level also kind of how you gain information at times and that's the really scary shit to me that stuff makes me uncomfortable uh, and then also, yeah, maybe you should... Maybe it is worth looking into VPNs and whether or not that might be able to circumvent these kind of problems on a user basis. And also maybe whether or not that stuff is legal or, or whether or not you'd be punished for using them. I don't know. Uh, yeah, this is this video is not sponsored by NordVPN because <laughs> I still don't have any sponsors. Partly because... Uh, they make me sponsorships make me nervous as a concept, but also because they're not they're not exactly beating my uh, down at the door. But yeah, accidental almost endorsement of VPNs and all that. Talk to somebody who knows more about them than me. <laughs> I uh, I think we're I think that's about it for the Article 13 question. I'm trying to think of every single avenue to discuss because it's potentially a big subject, but that'll be it. I'm, I think I'm going to move on to someone else now. And yes, this is about as rambly and unorganized as these tend to get. And I basically just keep... And there's always that death throw at the end where I kind of spiral for a few seconds and kind of repeat myself a bit. And then I'm like, I, yeah, I think that's all the things I can say. <laughs> and then I finally move on. All right. So as, just as a last thought, I'll, I'll, I'll try to pepper the description with comment... Like, I'll try to pepper the the description with links to some sources and so on. Just so you can keep going down this rabbit hole if you want to keep going, but definitely uh, take a look on your own too. Uh, so Stage Genesis asks, I've been playing tabletop RPGs since the mid-90s, and I'm curious about your opinions and experiences with them. How did you get into them? Which game was you the first? Uh, what other games have you played? Are you particularly... Uh, any you particularly like or dislike, or fun anecdotes you can share? So my first experience with tabletop ever was... geez, how did I get that book? I think I looked up, I think I was hanging out with like, it had to be middle school. It had to be like 7th or 8th grade, timing wise, because I never saw those people in high school, I thought, or most of them, I think. Yeah. I think around like 8th grade or something, I was getting invited to join a tabletop campaign, uh, or which really, I didn't even know the idea, I, didn't th- I don't think I even knew tabletop rpg or tabletop as being a category for me it was basically just dungeons and dragons you know the one tabletop game (laughs) basically and uh, i didn't know about versions at the time either but if when i look back at it i'm almost certain it was version 3.5 i think uh basically i was given i had this dungeon i had the player's handbook i think i rented it from the library actually and i just spent like actually, we were. We, we went, I went on a camping trip. I have this specific memory of being in a tent with a flashlight, just looking at this player's manual, and I was just. And I had my pencil, and I was working on my little player, my little character, and I was just researching how to make a character. At the time, I thought quarterstaffs were really rad shit for weapons, so I was making a monk that fought with a quarterstaff, and I was all enamored in the idea. Like, wow, it attacks multiple times at the same time, which seemed neat which I'd never played D&D before, so I didn't even know how good or bad it was. Uh, that whole mess. I... had that campaign go, because that was not great news. That As far as why quarterstaffs, it basically speaks to the fact that, like, Gambit has basically always been my favorite superhero design. Not necessarily my favorite superhero character, because uh, I had limited exposure to any superhero media until it started becoming a bunch of movies starting with the x-men movies and everything which i've largely like i've I've largely watched most of that stuff i i've missed half the dc movies i've only watched man of steel and then i was like this is this universe is bad i don't want to watch this universe anymore but then i kind of got suckered into watching uh suicide squad because this one will be different right oh no it was worse and then i then i saw wonder woman which was actually all right uh but i've seen all the x I, 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 I x-men came out when i was like 10 so like i saw all of those in the original series and the first two remakes i have not seen uh the one i have not seen apocalypse cuz the it didn't seem like it'd be great and i just never i was not motivated superhero fatigue uh but i've i've always liked gambit as a character as a design i didn't really know his character necessarily uh But I just this guy with quarterstaff throwing exploding cards is just a really cool idea. And then learning that he can put his kinetic energy into things besides the cards, too. Uh, It's not just he doesn't just throw exploding cards Uh, and the ways they implement that is really cool. Like I was reading a Gambit comic where he's about to like he's about to do a train heist all on his own. And he's chewing gum before the train heist and you don't really think much of it but at the end of the train heist he's captured he's like pinned to the wall and someone's like what are you gonna do now gambit and then gambit spits the gum in his face like because because the, the guy's like taunting him face to face and the guy sp- and then gambit spits the gum directly in the guy's face which explodes and i'm like and then the guy goes goes flying out of the train i'm like all right that was actually that was a setup and a payoff that I didn't even realize was a setup and a payoff because a good rider can use that guy's power in such an inventive way that the setup and payoff could be hidden because you don't know what he's going to use his power on in the first place. That's he's a fun design, good visual design, lots of variants that look neat, and also the fun thing of being a Louisiana Cajun, which is not you know a, it's a it's a way of getting away from being another generic like stereotypical white stereo- uh stereotypical like average white man which is the usual character the more variety the better in rpgs in comic books in media it's just all good it's a variant away from just being the default <clears throat> but that was but because of G- gambit i always liked quarter staves and so i would like i would actually be at uh My dad's upholstery shop, and I would use like the cardboard tube that was on the inside of the material. And the material, the material comes in like six-foot tubes, so you get this really long cardboard tube, and you could use it like a a kid could use that as like an, an imaginary weapon and all that. Like as a kid, I didn't play with, I never played with toys really. Maybe I did when I was a really, really young child, but I've never had a toy collection really. I had video games, and I had media, but aside from that, it was always like going around the environment or going through nature and looking at bugs and stuff like that or uh or like doing stuff like this where like my brother and i would fight each other with cardboard tubes and stuff like that or airsoft guns it was never really like i never really would like grab an action figure and like role play a story with it or whatever like that's i never got that but weirdly yeah like that was like those would be like me doing moments of sort of role playing this weapon that i like and you'll even see early on in a in a lot of uh these games uh like anything from dynasty warriors to uh what am i thinking of anything from from dynasty warriors or even dark souls or lords of the fallen or whatever like or uh or inevitably with a like the surge even yeah i'll, in, I'll in, in inevitably need to try the staff or spear weapon like many like i beat dark souls for the first time using the lightning spear you get in Sense fortress i always lean towards spear weapons and rapiers and st- like it, it, it had like a trajectory where it was first it was quarter staffs then it became kind of spears because the defensive hide behind the shield nature that makes sense to rapiers being like this precise version of a sword and everything. But like my favorite characters in Dynasty Warriors would always be like Ma Chao and Zhao Zhou Yun and Guan Yu, and all the characters using large like staff, halberd spear weapons. Uh it was just always a preference. I've never liked axes and hammers and even swords that much when I have the option of instead using uh quarter staffs and spears and make part and it's totally part of it's probably some dumb weeb thing of just watching the the crazy weapon go flippity foopity foopity, foopity then have way too many motions and so on and just the cool appearance of that kind of thing uh but it does not have anime connections as it's as its origin for me being interested in it. it's definitely it's definitely a direct connection to specifically gambit because i did have access to i want to say the first two vhs tapes of the show like, very limited exposure, unfortunately. I'm about to die. Am I about to bleed out, or am I bleeding out right now? No, those are, those are all good things. Let's just take a, a rest. That was a very large aside for just talking about the staves. <laughs> uh, but anyway. But it, it speaks to, like, that I, I was, like, pouring into this character that I thought was neat and everything. Uh, it was a shallow character in that I didn't have... Any kind of personality designed for said character. It was just, uh, d- it was just. I was just making schematics, basically. But it was. It was still a time to uh, potentially make my own version of this thing that I liked. And being a kid, you get to really get over invested in it and everything. Uh, the campaign itself, when it finally happened, which it took forever, uh, was basically a disaster. <laughs> uh, we went to like some game store and like they're they're like when like one of those ones that has like a back room where you play the games basically uh and it was a bunch of people i didn't know and my and the dungeon master was like i think the dungeon master was the only person i knew or maybe the person i knew was one of the players but i only knew one person in the entire game everyone else was just some larger group i'd been thrown into so already i'm out of my element because i'm bad at dealing with large numbers of people i like to meet new people one at a time uh I like to be in a group of people I know and then slowly just drip feed new people into said group as opposed to being thrust directly into a notion of confusing new people that I have to figure out. Uh, But it wasn't me that messed this up. It was that uh, the dungeon master wasn't ready to dungeon master, which thinking back at the uh, I always I always think of this as being their fault. But to some extent, uh, it's kind of just the fact that they were young because everyone was young and you have to like a there wasn't there was a failure of appreciation of the fact that a dungeon master has to improvise and has to uh react to the players and not just have a story to tell and this dungeon master unfortunately very much had a story to tell like they had a plan for what the campaign was going to be and people immediately started poking holes in his plan and ruining his story for in his eyes. And he got very sour about it and wasn't happy about it. And I, and it very quickly, uh, fell apart. And I think there was no more of that, uh, quickly before the, Oh, my healing went away. Oh, if I can do this, uh, yeah, it just he—he had—I don't know—I don't remember the specifics, but he had like some kind of riddle or trap or something, and various other things. And like the, there was a player that just knew the game better. That was just immediately ruining every single thing the guy the guy wanted to set up because he just knew how to poke holes in every little thing. And it just it fell apart, and people got uh, and people were unhappy as far as I could remember. And then it just never happened again, and I never saw any of those people again. So I, I can't even recall a single person's name or face. Because I never really met them long term, that and uh, that was basically that. Can I wear any of these things yet? I should. I need. I need to have better gear. I'm dying. It hurts. Everyone's hurting me. Oh, that was way better. That'll work for now. As we sit here and eat, he's having a good time. Uh, so that was my only encounter with any tabletop for a very long time until college, and by college I even mean late college. I knew it existed as a concept, and I learned more about it from afar. Uh, but as somebody who did not grow up playing CRPGs either, it was a lot. Of, it was it was largely alien to me. Over my childhood, I played like rareware games and action platformers and and combat games and shooters and stuff like a a lot of rareware games a lot a lot of like Banjo-Kazooie, Perfect Dark and a weirdly I you mean know, like they made it a weird they did they did make a surprising variety of games that were still all the same company so you could actually get a lot of different uses out of the same company's games and that was neat. Uh it wasn't until let's see my first ki- my first thing I got really into that would kind of count as an RPG by video gamer standards that are wrong uh, was probably Diablo 2 which I played a lot for a while I played Diablo 2 nonstop for like a year then I played Halo 2 nonstop for like a year and then I had my first encounter with tabletop with uh, RPGs and video games where you actually get to role play a bit which was when KOTOR came out I found out about KOTOR and I totally just bought it because it was Star Wars and looked like it was a good Star Wars game because I had been playing various star star wars games along the way and playing and watching the prequels which i still liked at that age because i was 13 or something uh and i'd not in fact their prequels were still coming out when kotor came out huh 1999 2002 2000 yeah kotor came out before the third one at least i am melting by the way a, my character's having a bad time it's probably because i'm doing A. Q&A. <laughs> drink But from Kotor, I went directly to Kotor Two, Jedi Empire, Mass Effect Trilogy, and Dragon Age Trilogy, and that kind of brings us here, and of course, Oblivion and Fallout Three and Fallout New Vegas. So those sort of those games all sort of laid the groundwork for starting to understand the idea of a game where you actually role play to some extent. It's a, they're all very limited video games where you make really limited choices. The best of which, probably the best options, probably being provided by Fallout New Vegas. But the other ones, at least you know, they try, but they get more. There are various levels of restrictiveness. You have to be this character or that character. Are you a Jedi or a Sith? Are you a renegade or a paragon? That kind of stuff. Uh, do you sacrifice yourself or do you make your friend sacrifice yourself? Let's just ignore the fact that there's a guy Im- immune to radiation standing right next to you. Goes, this is your sacrifice. Fallout 3's ending is terrible. Uh, uh, Fox ruins that ending completely. And he's not even a DLC character. He was there the whole time. Uh, so that that I, I started to grow and understanding. When I, when I play various CRPGs on this channel, you'll sometimes hear me refer to the fact that I encountered... Uh, Fallout, probably Fallout 1 at some point, and I encountered Morrowind at some point, and I encountered, I'm just trying not to fight anyone on the way out, <clears throat> uh, Dungeons & Dragons, The Temple of Elemental Evil, and uh, others like CRPG-ish games when I was younger, but I didn't understand them. So my encounter with them lasted minutes, basically, where I was like, "I, what the fuck is this? It remind, like it's kind of like when I played Myst for the first time when I was like four years old, and I genuinely didn't understand that it was a real that it was a video game, because <laughs> I was so young and did not know, and like, it was just on my grandma's computer, and they didn't understand it either. It was just some popular thing that people had, uh, but but. I, it's like uh, that's actually one of the things I want to get to at some point. I want to get to the, I have a, I have the Temple of Elemental Evil on GOG and I want to get around to playing it sometime just to confront my childhood of being inept at at a uh, CRPGs. Cuz at the time when I saw a top-down RPG, I thought, "Oh, Diablo 2." I like Diablo 2. Uh, and so when they didn't play like Diablo 2, I didn't know what to do at that point. Was basically the that was a little mo- cool moment where he's fighting all the things when I came up except these ones are clearly alive whoops it glitched uh so when, when if i saw a top-down rpg that didn't turn out to be diablo 2 basically then i didn't know what to do with it i, did, I didn't have the vernacular prepared the gamer grammar i i wasn't ready but uh over time uh bioware rpgs and a couple bethesda games leaned me towards understanding the stuff better and now i'm more in the the crazy realm where i'm playing now i'm playing pathologic and now i'm playing uh what was i thinking of damn it i lost it oh yeah like divinity and wasteland and so and morrowind finally went back to that cuz when i when, Admittedly, I bounced off Morrowind the first time because of the graphics. Because I played Oblivion, and I was like, "Oh, this is neat." And then I ran out of Oblivion to play, so I'm like, "Well, let's play the previous one that has werewolves in it. Cool." And then I, because uh, I, I still liked werewolves back then, uh, and then I tr- tried Morrowind for 20 minutes, and I was like, "This is a, this is a visual change," and my and me as a 16 year old is not ready for it. Uh, but by the time I reached college, what happened is. We were about to have summer break and i wanted my group of friends in the geology department to actually hang out during summer break instead of just not doing that which we did last year we just disappeared for three months and then all came back like hi everyone it's like what why are we doing this we hang out all the time we have fun with each other why are we not why do we just disappear to the corners of the earth the moment summer break starts uh and so I came up with the idea of like let's 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 meet up and do like anything really. I didn't have a plan. Like we could watch movies, we could uh, do we play board games or we could play video games or something. And uh, the early encounter, we played uh, I think we played Apples to Apples and then Mario Party. Like it was it was really like whatever we had on, had on hand, basically. But then, like, it started to evolve. Like, we would start getting more and more games into the mix, or we would find out about other people having various games that they could contribute to the pile. And sometimes I would go to, like, Barnes & Noble just to find some game somewhere and then bring that, like, to the next tabletop, which is why I have a copy, copy of Elder Sign, for example, is we'd be like, hey, let's play let's just play this at the next one. And we would just come up with with things to do but eventually, it became a more consistent, stable thing, which is that we just started playing D and D. Somebody introduced that to the situation. It was my friend Sid, which you can see in the Un- Unfairnament series, and it was uh, Jake and uh, Ben and a few other people. But if you watch like the if you watch season one of Unfairnament in particular, you see a bunch of the people that uh, would be in the D and D campaign. I think Carissa was there too. I think these are these people have very limited exposure to the channel, but they are in they are in that show at the very least, because that was the same group. Uh, and I, th- I think we were playing. We played a few different campaigns here and there. I think one of them kind of was a packaged campaign from a book, while another one was somebody's invention. And in particular, I think we even did something similar to what happened in Grave a Man, where uh we converted one campaign a cast from one campaign into another campaign basically some a a dungeon master didn't want to go kind of was was petering out so somebody else wanted to take over but they had their own campaign idea and so we had all of the characters uh all the characters from one campaign just woke up in captivity one day with like Exploding battle royale collars on them that were going to uh, that were going to kill them if they didn't obey this particular plan, and that's how they were forced into this particular scheme. For that, I'm going to die. That's how they were forced into that particular scheme for that kind of campaign. Was that they were literally hijacked and kidnapped into a different campaign because the previous campaign was ending because the the DM didn't want to do it anymore. I think that DM was actually. I think that was sid actually wanted to give jake a taste of his own medicine because jake kept min maxing and not really role playing and just focusing on winning the mechanics of the game and making broken characters and stuff like that and so sid wanted to make jake deal with being the uh dungeon master for a while and you know maybe may- maybe make it a learning experience and I, that was shown by the fact that i think sid started then breaking his character just to mess with Sid's, uh Jake's campaign and I started I started messing with Jake's campaign on accident basically because I that was the that was when I discovered being a druid and uh yeah druids are versatile <laughs> uh but we were all kind of collectively punished by for letting Jake DM because he would make broken monsters that were stupid and I don't think he understood the idea of DMing because he just he would just like be cruel to the players, basically. Like there's is really back and forth. Like I there was there admittedly there was a part in Sid's campaign where I lost my hunter. I had my orc hunter that I lost to Mummy Rot. And from what I've heard, Mummy Rot's supposed to be a very slow proceeding thing, but he had me die in like seconds from Mummy Rot, which might have been a mistake on his part or something, but uh that was a that was a rough weird thing of just losing my character permanently to a trap basically after a bunch of campaigns uh but i was kind of i kind of enjoyed the chance to try making a new character anyway so it wasn't that big of a deal to me but uh in particular like at one point jake made a character where it was like it was some mass of tentacles or something i don't remember i think i think we tried to open a chest in the swamp and the chest like was like a mimic and it just spewed tentacles out and all of those tentacles all were wielding individual weapons from inside the chest so it was just this mass flurry of arms holding weapons and so it had so many attacks per turn and so on that like with our group of six people that were fighting it I I swear every turn took an hour to calculate basically between the monster's many attacks and figuring out what the players were going to do with any amount of like grappling and individual crazy things that were happening with each player that like, it was such a mess that like every turn of the fight took like an hour to calculate. And then the, that was that one fight was basically just the session, which was not the most satisfying thing to do. Definitely got a more of a compassionate side from sid than jake as dms because he wasn't just randomly punishing people in particular a really rough thing that happened is that uh we were hanging out with the we were bringing in lewis which is also from infernament and a few other things and uh lewis was going to make a new character for the and join the campaign and he spent like all morning working on a character and then uh that character's kind of warped in in the middle of this thing as like a a red shirt, basically, is what functionally happened. It was in the middle of the exploding collar. You have to do the campaign campaign, which kind of says its own things about the Jake campaign, I guess. But Lewis, as like a level one character, just shows up in the middle of the situation. We are trying to siege a... We're, we're trying to siege this goddamn orc fortress... We're all along the top of the wall. There's orcs with crossbows shooting at us, and we're very far away. And uh, it's just a—it's just a very dangerous situation. And uh, it's actually, despite what happens to Lewis in the story, it's actually one of the more memorable and entertaining encounters I've had in D and D. It's one of the ones that I've referred to in other times where I'm asked to refer to something about about D and D. But uh, this was when I was playing as a druid, and. Sid was some unknown turtle spellcaster creature. Uh that just always seemed to have a bag of tricks that he was not willing to share until they the the, the, the identity of until they just were suddenly employed. He liked to, to have surprises. Uh so we had this this fortress that we had to storm, I and it was like a it was like 120 feet away or something that was far enough away that it would take multiple turns to even get there uh for most people and that was a whole struggle in its own because they were shooting at us and they were there was enough of them that even if they didn't have the best hit chance or something they were definitely hitting uh so immediately on the first turn lewis's character dies like his first turn of combat in his first session of D ever and Lewis's character dies and i imagine that like other tabletop people might like just wave that away like just vague just a little bit of compassion as like a dm you might be like nah and then, and and you wouldn't tell the players because you don't want to be like i'm actually giving you plot armor like the whole point of rolling dice behind a guard is that you can kind of hide what happens exactly sometimes and fudge the numbers sometimes to make the game better. That's kind of one of the nice things about it being run by a person instead of a computer. Uh, And I I imagine many, 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 many Dungeon Masters, when incorporating a new player for the first time, would not immediately kill them on the first turn, even if the guy did roll like a crit or whatever. But uh, Jake was a bad Dungeon Master and in part because of the fact that he... I, he often seemed to view it as winning which is not the correct way to view any part of dungeon mastering uh, you're, not, you're not competing with the players you're just you're, you're telling a story and coming up with something interesting for them to do. These are not meant to be fought that <laughs> I realized at the last second that was not those were not normal enemies That is the uh, Alliance town in the area, and yeah, that's why you don't just run straight towards uh, waypoints in games. But uh, during this encounter, I had a great time, which is that I I was my druid, and I had a travel form already. I was doing a special 3.5 variant character from the extended player manual where... You could take your druid and forego having a animal companion, which this might be confusing because uh, I don't think animal companions were even a thing in in five, which is the campaign we did on on the YouTube channel, Uh, at least not for druids. But in 3.5, I believe druids would have an animal companion normally, a familiar, uh, but you could in this special variant uh, not have a familiar and instead have expanded shape-shifting powers, which is that you had basically different rules for how much you could do it uh like with drez i could shapeshift like twice a day or something like that and i was more of a spellcaster druid so i and leaned away from that but this druid was a shapeshifter druid in in specialty and was playing a special variant that made them especially good at that and they could keep you, you kind of just shape shapeshift in and out constantly and also instead of having fixed forms as his druid when he shapeshift into a ...particular creature... You shapeshift, ...you shapeshift into that creature... ...like you just gain the stats of said creature... ...you're a bear... ...you're going to transform into a level 5 bear... ...look up the monster manual page for a level 5 bear... ...and that's your stats... It, ...with the, with this variant that was in the extended player manual thing... ...or the player manual 2... ...or whatever it was... Uh, ...you actually had... ...basically consistent forms... ...for like your... your ...you had like a travel form on land you had a like a combat form on land you had like a flying form and a aquatic form and they would kind of be like a static one where you had like a stat block you would write out you would write out your stats on a particular on a separate ow you would write out your stats on a separate page and know them and everything and there was rules to how they worked as a character and it was more it was more consistent and you could shape shift in and out of them i think basically infinitely there was basically just like a a transformation time or something like that uh so what i did is i just transformed into my travel form wolf that had like 120 movement which was absurd so i just instantly in the first turn not only uh closed the gap on the keep we were running up on but even went around the corner So I was flanking the keep so that none of the archers on the front line could actually shoot at me because they didn't have line of sight. So they were just shooting at all my teammates, which did not have a similar solution to deal with. And there's my corpse, my weirdly human-looking skeleton on my corpse. That's a weird element. (laughs) Uh, So I I basically was just like, deuces, this is a dangerous situation. I'm not staying here. Uh, I think slowly, Sid conjured some kind of shield and was slowly moving forward every turn with the remaining party members minus lewis who had instantly died <laughs> whoops uh but what i did is i i used uh i think it was shaped stone or something i physically created a doorway in like the side of the uh keep and just made my own entrance which was fun so this is some of this is also go leads to uh i had a particular interest in full metal alchemist it was the first anime outside of like toonami with like like that was like like that, like that stuff was like yu yu Hakusho, show dragon ball z crap like that uh full metal, full metal alchemist was the first thing i found out outside of that context and got really into so i liked the idea of making characters that fit that kind of design and uh actually there was a there as a as an aside there was a whole thing where i went on the the matrix online forums and role played as basically edward elric that happened at one point it was that i was excited about matrix online and then uh i was waiting for like the launch to happen for like the out the beta or whatever it was and I was on the forums, and I, ma- and I found, like, an RP group, which I was a whole concept I wasn't familiar with. So I made up a character that was basically just a mute uh, Edward Elric with, like, the gimmick of, like, being able to, like, instead of speaking, they would make words appear on, like, a piece of, like, aluminum they carried around because of, because, you know, bending the spoon in the Matrix. Like, that was the whole thing. Uh like, it was a character with a specific emphasis on manipulating the environment and things around them via Matrix tricks, basically, uh, and all that. But an interest in that stuff always leads to me on my druids incorporating abilities that let me manipulate the environment. And that's, that feeds directly towards that interest and why I keep doing that all the time with Drez and with this previous druid that I don't remember the name of. Uh is I just always like the idea of like just you know clap your hands together put them forward and now there's a door here like that's 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 such a cool fun idea and so if I can make my character do that then I'm like yeah this is fun just like how it's fun to play a werewolf in World of Warcraft and stuff like that it's one of those things where you don't get a lot of opportunities so you take them when you can uh, I guess we're gonna kill the infiltrators the so I, I clap I, I I make the door I go inside this keep and wouldn't you believe it it's the it's their unguarded armory there's nobody in the room and there's just an armory and it's all their weapons this will be important later this is an important setup and payoff uh as far as i can tell this is largely accidental setup and payoff but it this 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 is a perfect storm of cool things happening uh so everyone's shooting at sid's shield they don't if, if, if any of the orcs even noticed me dart into their uh, dart past the keep in only one turn, they seem to not be reacting. They're all just peppering this giant glowing shield constantly with their arrows. I guess there'd be bolts because they were crossbows and trying to kill the rest of my party. And Sid's holding a shield and they're moving forward. I don't know what the rules are or what weapon, what shield he was using. So I can't verify if this was even legal or what, but whatever. It's a cool scenario. Uh what happens is a an orc critically fails and we were definitely going with the rules or the house rules or official rules where whenever a critical fail happens something real bad probably goes on in many cases like their weapon would become i don't actually see any infiltrators uh their weapon would become broken or dropped a very common outcome would be that somebody would drop and lose their weapon and maybe not be able to find it for the remainder of the fight so they have to improvise or something like that uh these poor orcs their crossbows would break when they critically failed so the uh the orc critically fails and his crossbow breaks he's like well shit that was the one thing i was doing i can't like punch them from 120 feet away so He goes down to his uh you know the armory to get another crossbow where he finds uh a dire wolf and several bears (laughs) because i had transformed i was transformed into my wolf form and i had summoned an army of bears and so the basically their armory was a blender that would eat anybody who entered and It became especially amazing when the third orc critically failed. Not just one, not just two, but three of them. They kept critically failing and just going down to this armory to die one by one, not knowing what they were about to get themselves into. And it was like a comic sketch. It was absurd. Uh, And I was just racking up kills at this point and actually turning out to be way more help to my team than it would have initially seemed when I abandoned them, because I'm basically killing all of the orcs despite no in in a weird stealthy way where both my team like their characters at least and the orcs themselves would like not know that that's happening god damn that's a scary elite character that must be like a good hunter pet or something like one of those rare ones There's no, there's no other ones around here weird but that was just that was just a grand fun time that was that was basically the entirety of that scenario. There's was, there's was more stuff that happened, but like there was a lot of moments where I would just use my my I would constantly use my druidness to just ruin traps that they had planned. Like uh Jake had a room J- Jake had some kind of hallway where the roof was covered in spikes and like oh that's weird that the roof's covered in spikes so we're like you're you're sneaking through and you're like what's going to happen am i going to step on a pressure plate like is are the are the spikes going to come down at us like what what do these spikes mean and nothing seemed to be happening and then the gravity inverted in the hallway which means you were which would meant that i would then fall directly into said spikes but i had flight form unlocked so i just turned into a bird and flew away and i just flew down the hallway upside down like this is like whatever i can i can fly like i i i I was relentless at just ruining traps these sorts of ways uh but something i should probably talk about is role playing and how much this party does or does not do it as far as i could tell And admittedly, I was also a frustration at times. Uh, I was the only person who role-played at all in the group. I often played... I often would come up with some kind of thing of like having some kind of antisocial or racist character or something. Just because I wanted to have a character that didn't like the other members of the group as an excuse for why I don't speak much. Because while I can... While I was already immediately comfortable with uh, playing a character that uh would make decisions in character i was not good at dealing with coming up with things to say in character and doing improv dialogue was all like really weird and alien to me and uncomfortable and i would just choke up constantly which also happened in in the youtube series or just it's i never i never felt great about that stuff uh Doing, char- doing it in-character voice is like a whole extra thing. So I'd come up with excuses not to necessarily actively always be talking and guiding the conversations. But I would make decisions in characters. Uh, one example of of me being annoying with it, with J- with Sid, was that he made a campaign. This was our first campaign where I got to re- reuse my original monk idea that I'd played as a kid uh he he made like a zombie apocalypse start outbreaking in the middle of modern society and so everyone was playing like normal-ish people kind of and then just like it suddenly like out of the sewers basically like fantasy elements just kept popping up somehow uh and it was like this idea that like it was like i think the idea was going to be like something shadow run like ultimately where like reality like our world and another world are like mixing in some way we never we never got a full development necessarily but that seemed to be where it was kind of going and uh sid kind of made the mistake of not putting our characters all in one place together uh so i just kind of kept walking down the street on this giant map of a city in a random direction because and like you would Everybody else just immediately met up with each other. But I'm like, I don't... None of these characters know each other. I'm not going to just randomly walk into them. And in fact, at one point I came by a bar and one of the other uh, party members came like popping out of the bar covered in blood. So my character turned around and went the other way because there's a weird homeless man covered in blood. Uh, like I was I was making sensible in-character choices, which was actually kind of delaying the start of the campaign a little bit. But I, w- I, w- I was kind of challenging Sid to make an actual in-universe context reason to force us together which I think I don't remember what it was but he eventually did something that just some sort of thing and I think we ended up holing up in the same building because of the actual like masses or something which made sense it, it it was true that he had basically not come up with the reason to actually force these characters together and in and we also were not characters that knew each other or were even located in the same place so story context helps most campaigns i play feature everyone just kind of being already in a group somehow so that we skip that step uh like i played one i was playing one this last year uh where what was it uh it was it was the it was this drow campaign that that's uh packaged one for 5e and where you start off as drow slaves and like, well, that's a really easy way to get the characters together because you're all you've all been captured by this other force and you have to stage an escape together and all that. And that that makes that kind of stuff work. What is this here? Die by the sword increases parry chance by 100% reduces all damage taken by 30%. Oh, damage mitigation. Go. Click on the things, click on the things, click on the things. <laughs> I should not have clicked on that one. That made me weak, weaker, didn't it? shit uh but as far as role playing goes every other character every other player was just so bad at it they just weren't doing it and it was really frustrating actually uh and it, it actually became a point of friction within the group behind the scenes cause Sid would get mad at it and I would get mad at it <clears throat> sorry it was time for more water uh I talk so... F- I, I often talk so fast and continuously during Q&As because it's not being mediated by gameplay pacing at all. And it just, like, wears it down. But the... Oh uh, uh, What was a good example? At one point, we played Vampire the Masquerade, for example. And we went into a suburban neighborhood. And... I was so confused. Because, like... Sid... Uh, so, Sid was DM again. Because he often was. Jake and Ben just... Went into people's houses and just attacked anything they encountered. Like, and Sid would be like, like they'd be like, we beat the do- door down, and it would be like, uh, you see a figure in the dark, and they're like, we light it on fire and stuff like that. Like, then a guy comes running, out, running out of the house on fire, and like they kill him in the in the uh, in the uh, front lawn. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I was. I, I would I would just sit there on the lo- I would I would actually not enter the building I wouldn't go with them I would just stand outside like what are they doing This isn't our objective This is weird, and it's like it was like RPG players that were raised by Diablo basically, which is that you it, it, are like it's it's one of the things where I get to where, where I talk about how various video game RPGs are not RP, are not RPGs because they don't feature role playing they just feature. Running around in an open area, killing everything, getting loot, and leveling up a character, which that's what Batman games are now. So how is that? <laughs> like, that's Darksiders and Batman and Shadow of Mordor. So, like, we've got a really bad definition of RPG at this point, if that's what we're going to be counting it as. I'm, I think you can level up now in Assassin's Creed and, when, and you couldn't originally level up in assassin's creed so if you want to talk about that stuff being rpgs which assassin's creed games are rpgs spoilers none of them all assassin's creed games have almost identical gameplay there was they didn't magically become rpgs because they added certain meters or loots to the game like no uh but if you if you went into tabletop rpgs only understanding rpgs based on video games and even worse only understanding them based on like the ones that basically aren't role-playing games but instead are games where you just kill things for numbers to pop up and pick up and hope that the next loot is blue or maybe even purple or maybe even gold wow a legendary magic sword of stabbiness plus two then that's how you view then that's how you end up viewing rpgs as like a you build a character with maximum stats and beat all the things and everything you ever see must be a dungeon. And this was the epitome of that because first of all, Jake immediately was min-maxing because he was trying to figure out how can I break this vampire, the masquerade game in a way where I get like a familiar, that's essentially a second character. So I can basically cheat by having two characters instead of one making me twice as powerful. And like the fact that the moment we walked into this dungeon, uh, Ben and Jake were just attacking everything. I just accidentally called it a dungeon but that's how they saw it. Like we were in a suburban neighborhood and they're like oh it's a dungeon. Let's go loot the houses and fight all the things. I'm like those are it's a suburban neighborhood. It's just people. You're just randomly murdering people which I mean you can you're a vampire I guess but like then they were like asking about the loot and stuff like that and I'm like what do you think you're going to get? I mean, you can rob their house, I guess, but, like, you're not going to find, like, something that helps your vampire character, probably. Like, this is a weird path to go down. And they were, like, deriding me for not actively taking part in this. And I'm like, I don't—they don't—the fact that they're not only doing this, but they're continuing to do it after no results are really happening, and they're baffled by me not be taking part, I'm like, oh, no— they have zero self-awareness of the idea that they're not in the right here. And that the thing that they're doing... They think that the thing that they're doing makes sense. That was a that was a weird trip. I did not know what to make of that. But it would kind of keep going. Because uh, as a later example, uh, there was a time where... Uh, what was it? Uh, I had my... Oh yeah, it was my my hunter that was weirdly good at stealth. This is actually a fun little side story I'll I'll get to before I get to that is that my I had a hunter that was that was he was weird. He he specialized in melee with multi-attacks and everything and, and using like war glaives and he uh had a high stealth stat which he would employ and for thieving purposes despite, you know, not necessarily being a thief class. Uh there was a amazing moment where I found this massive room full of loot and I had had split from the party because I didn't trust them and also was being selfish so uh, we were in a dungeon and they were going their way down a main corridor and I had like kind of vanished in a side corridor just to try to find what loot I could get that I could keep just to myself without sharing it uh, because that's the kind of character I was playing and uh, I find this massive chamber with a giant treasure chest and an apparently unconscious or unresponsive giant scorpion which was so large that it must have been introduced to the room uh when it was smaller and then grown to the size of the room and is now trapped in there indefinitely probably surviving actually on uh consuming all of the adventurers that try to get to that chest if i were to guess uh but it's it wasn't responding, so I I snuck in. I'm like, let's do these stealth rolls, and I I was nailing the stealth rolls. I still I was roll I was stealthing on the way into the room. I stealthed me opening the treasure chest and filling my pockets with whatever I could carry and stuff. And then I stealthed all the way out of the room, and then right at the doorway, one last little stealth check, critical fail, <laughs> yay! <laughs> so the thing wakes up, and Um, And it reaches out and it grabs me with its its giant uh, scorpion claw. And uh, amazingly, but it was stuck. Uh, I was technically outside of the room, but its its claw could reach through the room. But by grabbing me, its claw was then too wide to get back through the doorway. So it was basically stuck with its claw outside the room holding me basically grappling me me to death turn by turn uh and so we were doing like grapple checks which is very it's always very convoluted and confusing and i always forget how it works but we're doing grapple checks to see how that's going as it's basically constricting me to to death and i have no party members to save me because i'm being a selfish thief character in that moment uh amazingly uh (laughs) amazingly the uh This guy manages to critically fail his grapple check on the last turn. Like, if you look at the countdown of how many turns I was going to survive being grappled, uh, it failed its grapple check on the very last turn to check for whether or not I was going to keep being grappled. And it dropped me. And because it's so cumbersome and awkward, it couldn't reach me anymore now that it had dropped me onto the floor. And I'm unconscious on the floor out of reach of this giant scorpion that's like trying to scrabble at me but can't reach me and it's like both a horror scenario and incredibly funny because i'm just like i i i mean i technically got away with the loot i guess but i'm unconscious from being mauled by a giant scorpion that also critically failed at at killing me when it had no excuse not to kill me uh and did it actually critically fail or was sid like fudging numbers to be nice or whatever who knows you never know because that's what good DMing usually is but creating these absurd scenarios is kind of part of the fun of the whole engine and all that that character would then later go I, I, one one point against the idea of Sid just being nice to me is that that character then died of mummy rot the next session <laughs> so who knows but the reason I was bringing this up is because it's a bad role play moment that came up later which is that uh I I had a new character that we had to introduce to this the campaign because my previous one died and so I came up with this excuse, like, well, they're in this weird jungle temple uh, with, like, ziggurats and stuff like that. I'm like, I, I think I can come up with like how to introduce a character to the scenario. And the idea was that my character would be a local druid from that area, like a, a lone druid that looks over that environment. And uh, I would be spying on the party in shapeshift form as various local creatures and blending to try to ascertain like what their intentions were towards this temple and towards this environment and whether or not they needed to be dealt with. Like that would be my introduction as a character would just basically be spying on them. And so Sid would just say every now and then, like you, like, uh, like you see an owl up on a perch or something like that. And then Ben would just fucking attack the animal, the random animal that's not attacking the party. And it's just part of the wildlife. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? And it's like like ben's just using like they're they're failing to acknowledge correctly the difference between like player knowledge and character knowledge like yeah you you know you probably know that that's me and my new druid character you watched me just draw or not draw but write out the notes for next to you while we were like doing while you guys were playing and stuff and i was making my new character and things like that but like you can't just be like I like you don't it's not in character just to randomly attack non-aggressive wildlife for no reason just because you're trying to like shake the druid character out of his form that you don't know he's in because it's just some form and like that that was that was one of the frustrating things is like even even trying to do my own characters there'd be dumb conflicts because characters would just do bizarre actions failing to separate player knowledge and character knowledge and so on so like it's a it's very hard to ever do a D &D campaign not only because the game is so niche and weird yeah so those are some of the infiltrators but they're like uh, so there they are those those kind of hard to find in the mass not only is the game really convoluted although it's not it's never as complicated as people think it is uh it's because a lot of the mechanics are are intuitive and a lot of the mechanics are answered by like well i want to do this how do i do that and then you look then you figure out how to do that like everything's in- informed by the player driving what they want to do so and and largely if you don't know what to do the, the dungeon master can often just say what to what to do or what to roll or even make up rules on the spot instead of looking up the real ones that's honestly kind of valid anyway uh but uh on top of being such a a difficult game to get people to play in the first place even when you get groups together there can be so many reasons why various members of the group are incompatible or the dungeon or the the campaign's not working and so on and this is kind of some of that it's like i got a, we got a group of people that were interested in the game but it was like they were interested in the game for like the wrong reasons because they weren't like they weren't interested they wouldn't role play and in fact they would act they would actively break role playing at times with moments like that where they would just attack somebody at random because well I know that that's the a player in shapeshift form I'm like yeah but that's not how the game works that kind of stuff it's so, like that was a a point of frustration but this is building to something because uh we hit a point where Sid was really done with the not role playing and so he was he he conspired a plan to punish this behavior which i found interesting which is that uh we had a we had a deck of many things in this campaign which many people know not to put in their games because it messes with everything but this was jake's campaign where it was just all it was all about just jamming everything into it ever and not necessarily having any kind of coherent story it was just a series of encounters basically but uh what was it uh ben was first of all ben was playing a monk but he was also at some kind of vow which that meant he was like double bound behavior wise like when you're playing a religious character that obeys a god like a cleric or a paladin or a monk or something like if you have a deity that means you kind of have rules on how you can behave and at the very least you have like an alignment that you have to behave within the alignment of and if you break said alignment uh if you break said alignment you can uh end up losing your class or your powers or something like that and he had, had he had an additional vow that put even more restrictions on him and uh the deck of many things had previously created oh what was it oh i think the weird thing that happens is that we had let an npc draw from the deck of many things And so the NPC, which was kind of our guide through the campaign, which was also just Jake's excuse to also play a character while being a DM at the same time, uh, that that deck, many things that NPC had drawn a deck of many things card that had created, it had basically created a person that was loyal to them. Uh, But then that then that NPC died, like sessions later. And so the way that that manifested was that the uh, the deck of many things summon that had been tied to that NPC kind of lost it and became aggressive and disjointed and, and confusing. And we didn't know what to do with them. Uh, they, like they might be dangerous, they might be crazy, they might be something else or so on. And uh, we started having a, this philosophical debate about whether or not it was a person, which was actually kind of interesting to have that come up in this otherwise not kind of nothing campaign, uh, and I was really getting frustrated because I was like, "Well, there's literally there's like we we had already subdued them and made them unconscious, and we we're talking about whether or not they we, to execute them basically." And I was like, "This is," I was talking about it being like morally wrong to just execute them and all these other things, and and so on. And also, I was a druid, so there's some argument there, although whether or not druids care about sentient sentience is maybe up in the air but i was playing as as a good character at least and i was arguing this way and i was getting really frustrated because uh ben wanted to kill this character and i'm like what are you doing why why you just want to execute them we could abandon them here if we want to or we could see when they wake up if they have like come back to their senses or anything other other thing like there's so many other better approaches than just executing this person because they freaked out when the the thing the person that summoned them Uh, died Uh, and this whole time I'm making all these reasonable arguments and Ben is just being kind of out of touch with his reaction to all this and Sid like fucking Emperor Palpatine is just like whispering us here like do it do it and like arguing against everything I say and I'm like what are you doing and I was so frustrated because it was like it seemed out of character for Sid as a person to be making such, such weird stances in general and like bad faith arguments and everything and I was getting really frustrated, in, like, in real life a little bit as a result. Because it wasn't just like he was role-playing. Because his his, didn't, it didn't fit his character's character either. So I didn't know why he was doing this, where he was trying to convince men to do this. And uh, what he was doing is he was i found out later when during Sid's smoke break what what his plan was and how this was all a scheme on his part because he's so frustrated with ben not role playing and not playing by character and so on that he was trying to make he was trying to convince ben to make a choice that would completely break his character it was on purpose he was trying to get ben to make this decision that would uh just completely like go against his alignment and his vows and so on. And just something would have to give and he would have to lose either like his feet or his class or spells or something was going to break about his character because he would be like a murderer that would be out of line of how his character is supposed to work. And it's like, Oh, you son of a bitch. You were, you were getting back at him because you were so sick of, of, of DMing for him and his behavior. Uh, that, that unfortunately did not come to pass because I kind of wanted to see him get the its too once I knew about that. But he he after after we took our break, he ultimately decided not to randomly murder someone as a monk. Funny, but yeah, like that would have that was the that was the level of frustration we had reached with lack of role playing uh, was that that had happened. Uh, as far as. Uh, As far as which engines I've played, I have played D&D 3.5, Pathfinder, Starfinder, technically. Uh, D&D 5E, and some version of Shadowrun, and some version of Vampire the Masquerade. The Vampire the Masquerade campaign was very short-lived, and I don't really know what happened to it, ultimately. I think it kind of just dissolved. And uh, I only played Shadowrun for for one session, and it was not a good session. Uh... Basically, it was just thrown in my lap, and I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know the universe. I didn't know the characters. I didn't know what the roles meant, and so on. And we were being run. It was being run by a friend of Sid's that that ran other campaigns that he did or whatever. And he was just coming in as a guest, and he was DMing it. And I got the worst possible. I ended up getting the worst possible role, which is like for a campaign for a setting I don't understand, which is I was like a fixer or whatever, if or whatever. I I've I what it's what's called, but I was the. I was the jo- the the role that would like have connections in society and like create jobs and things like that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know this universe. So I, I like I, it, the, the, playing that character invent, it relied on me being able to come up with information that I d- did not have the ability to come up with. So like that was just a whole mess. So it'd basically be like. I would basically just look to the dm and be like yeah what happens what do i know and stuff like that like every few seconds and is basically a character i wasn't even playing so that was a mess but he was he was clearly trying really hard to get p- to sell people on this universe and get people to enjoy playing Shadowrun because like he was he was trying uh he was coming up with these cinematic set pieces and fun ideas and really giving a lot of effort and he let he like he he gave this massive description of like the incredible damage that and carnage that this one mega like goss cannon had done to a building that a player had fired and so on to like get them really like you know like the way you describe the visuals to make people really hyped It it felt like uh, the session felt like that I- the intro on rails chapter that's really hype at the beginning of like AAA video games where you aren't really making any meaningful decisions and it's half cut scenes and so on like that's what it that's what the se- the session felt like and especially felt like that to me because I couldn't I couldn't tell what my character was doing I had hopes for my character in vampire because I was playing as the as as I often do I made the excuse to make the to play the beast race there's a a clan in Vampire the Masquerade that, ha- that has trouble maintaining the masquerade, as they put it. Because uh, they, have, they have like animalistic features that obviously make it harder for them to blend in with human society. Which is the, why it's called the masquerade in the first place. Uh, is that they, they, they fail to blend correctly. Hey there. Oh, I'm about to be attacked, aren't I? Oh, no, maybe not. I'm supposed to get the cargo. Okay, I should eat or something if I can. I'm out of of food, aren't I? Shit, I'm in trouble. There it is. But uh, I also had like additional mutations because you can in those in some of those games you can take like negative and positive perks in conjunction with each other. Where like if you take. It's like a it's like a, it's like a, a token system sort of where like you if you take a negative trait you gain the ability to add an, a, a, any number of positive traits that equ- that add up to the point value of the negative trait you took. So it's like you can basically add cool things to your character but they have to be counterbalanced by negative things and it's it's a really interesting character creation system. And some of the ones I did were just making me further and further unrecon- like unable to maintain the masquerade basically and be worse and worse at blending in because that just seemed like a fun idea and i, I wanted to see where that was going to go but uh i swear we must have only done like a, cu- a couple of sessions because i just don't remember much of anything of that campaign outside of the original uh outside of that one specific example of just horrible role-playing that happened but it, it seemed like a d- an interesting universe and from what i remember it even seemed like it might, b- might have been somewhat less complicated than 3.5 was which had its own appeals because I think we tried to incorporate new players that hadn't done D and D and so on. But really, the whole appeal—the whole appeal of D- of of uh, role playing games—as I've probably said before plenty—is just the idea of like when you play a tabletop game, you can come up with solutions for things, and it's one of the most appealing things is being in these problem situations and coming up with your own ways out of them or even your own stupid things to do in them your your own dumb funny situations uh and it's often comedic if no, for no other reason than just the fact that there is tension that is being relieved and dumb mistakes happening and so on and the constant risk of failure or great success and a bit of randomness that makes the game less good uh for being like a hyper balanced consistent game but better for having a dynamic story because nobody not the players not the dm has full control over what happens because even after all the arguing out of who's going to do what and what's going to happen in the story happens the dice still play a role in what will actually succeed and so on and that makes it very amusing and it's what keeps the it's what keeps the experience fresh to a shocking degree and uh the un- the only unfortunate thing is just that, like, when you have, that because you're getting a bunch of people together that have to be together, and it's often just whoever's willing to play the game more so than, like, who's the closest friends. Uh, any large group of D&D characters, like, I, I I basically never finished a campaign. Like, admittedly, they're, some, they're not short campaigns ever. Uh, they're always big sprawling things but like uh, they never reach the ending because there's always some kind of there's always some kind of friction that happens like in my in my uh campaign from last year that was not on youtube it was just my friends at my house or really my friend's friends at my house at the at my friend's house (laughs) uh like there was like a confrontation and an argument, and then the DM didn't really want to do it anymore because it wasn't fun anymore after bad conflict happened. And like, there's always like, it always feels like someone's gonna mess things up. And then, like, it's 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 work. D and D is work, and it's fun, but like, you have to be dedicated to it and consistent about it and do it for a long time to really make it anywhere. And almost inevitably, something goes wrong there where somebody doesn't drive with the other members of the group or uh somebody moves or somebody like something happens that makes somebody unavailable and different things get messy along the way and just there's so many reasons why the whole thing can become a mess that's creepy zell frax and that's more or less what happened again but there's some great moments uh I have at least one really funny moment to bring up, which is that uh, our our friend Arif, which you will know from Overcooked and Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time, uh, was playing an idiot. Uh, He was playing a thief that had a less than 10 intelligence score, and I believe he'd never played D&D before, but we explained to him that 10 is average intelligence, so less than 10 means you're actually dumber than average and stuff like that. And he embraced that. Uh, He was playing... Just the dumbest man, <laughs> uh, just consistently, uh, and it, led, and it led to a lot of great moments because he was actually really good at being in character more than you'd expect, or at least he, he whether or not he had an idea, a plan for his character from the, be- the beginning, he at least had like a, a consistent overall behavior pattern to his character that went somewhere. And, uh, the f- what happens, he had all this, he had all these stolen goods, like, uh, we had. <laughs> so we we had, had we had a misunderstanding we were in, we were on a boat and we saw another boat and we had a, and we kept getting attacked constantly so when another boat came up we kind of had a misunderstanding and attacked them and uh thinking it was more people attacking us but it was probably maybe just a random group of traitors. or maybe they did it they actually might have attacked us but still it might they actually might have been the aggressors there i don't remember but we get to the next town and a reef idiot character is all like, "So, do you kn-? like we? we he, was, he <laughs> I had a, how do I how do I say this? He uh, he wanted to sell the stolen goods. You know, classic Elder Scrolls issue. You know, and we were like, well, you can't just sell it to a random person. You need you need to find a fence or something." And so he just goes up to a random person and is like, do you know where I can find a fence to sell all these stolen goods? And, and the person just points at them and screams thief and the guards grab him. And I'm like, I, I swear to God, <laughs> this is not happening right now. So the guards are escorting Arif to jail and everybody else is nowhere near him like we're I'm I'm definitely like backing the hell up like I'm not associating with this guy. I don't know that guy. Uh but I <clears throat> my character uh had a specific problem with being imprisoned which had manifested itself in a few w- in a few ways like at one point when people went down a hatch I just stayed on top to guard the top uh because uh I didn't want to go down the hatch cuz what if I got locked down there? Like, I s I'd specifically re-earned my freedom at the beginning of this campaign when we escaped Drow Jail, so I wanted to not ever be imprisoned again, and all my decisions were motivated by that. And so I would be kind of afraid, irrationally, at times, of those kinds of uh, opportunities. Uh, the... Uh So what had happened is my sorcerer, which is I was a sorcerer, I had my metamagic, which is a cool system where the sorcerers have like a point value that's like an extra, like they have spells per day like everyone else, but they also have metamagic points, which they can spend to augment their spells. And since I was, uh, since I was afraid of being captured, I kind of went with two things. One, I wanted, uh, the metamagic variants that makes spells have increased range, If you add this effect to your spell, it doubles the range of the spell. Or if you use it on a touch spell, meaning a spell that you normally have to do at at contact range, it becomes like a 30-foot spell. Like suddenly you can cast it at a range instead of at touch, which is very useful. And then I also had a metamagic variant that silenced my spells. Or not silenced my spells. It made it so that my spell could be cast uh, without verbal and somatic components. That would means it's, it still required materials if those were involved, but it meant that I could cast a spell without the hand gestures or voice component of the spell, which would mean that I could cast spells while bound and gagged, in particular. If I was held captive, I could still spell cast w- with the limited pool of how many metamagic points I had. In addition to this, in my spell pool itself, my actual spells, not the metamagic, I took the spell knock, which unlocks locks. So as you can see, I have equipped my character to not be imprisoned again. Because he, spe- he can spell cast while his hands are bound and he's gagged. And he has a spell that unlocks things. So, there you go. He can undo... He's Houdini, essentially. Uh, but the, the specific variation that happened here is... I'm like, well, I gotta get a reef out of this. But I've gotta not associate with this. Because this is a mess. So, my, my genius plan is to... Uh, jailbreak a reef by just using knock at range i casted it without verbal somatic components so nobody could tell that i was the one casting it so i was not incriminating myself and i was using the other metamagic effect too to cast it at a range so that it would be cast from a great distance away so that uh, i could do it without approaching him so he's just in the middle of this armed escort and his shackles fall off and he like has to run for it and luckily for him that's the exact moment we're like a giant creature attacks the gates of the town, like, which they were, like, right next to. So a, a convenient distraction, probably invented by the DM to add to the chaos when he happens to escape. Oh, wait, no, I think the attack... Oh, yeah, no, the attack happened first. The town started getting attacked, and then I unlocked Arif's shackles secretly from a distance so he could try to escape in the chaos. But, like, the specific configuration of the things had created a solution, and I'm like, I'm like, I immediately love from my limited time with it i love five i love D &D 5e sorcerers i love the metamagic system it's really cool uh it's a really good uh alternative to how cool druids are with all their options and stuff uh and he gets to like try to scrabble away and and so on That, that that's that was the main interesting part was just that whole thing of him just immediately getting himself arrested when nobody was even suspecting him and then me having to Try to figure out how to let him free while also not incriminating myself in the process because he's going to get us in trouble. Uh, what was the other thing that happened? Uh, I got I got unreasonably lucky at times. I had entirely defensive spells for the most part. Like I had stuff like mirror image that would create multiple copies of myself. And then every time you somebody attacked me, they had to roll a dice to see whether they hit me or one of the mirror images and so on uh a lot of things that were that were about avoiding damage uh shielding myself from incoming attacks like I actually had the spell called shield which was like actually like a counter spell which is a mechanic I didn't know existed because my druid never had any but apparently there's spells that you can cast as a reaction to other things happening and so shield would like if a, if like a projectile or like a attack or something came at me I could cast shield which would use up a level one spell slot but it would but it, I didn't have to use it as an action during my turn and it would block the incoming attack by raising my AC by 10 while the attack was coming in or something. And I was like, oh, that's a cool, that's a really cool system being able to like counter attacks coming in. Uh, Basically, we came up in a hut and there was two people there. And they wanted us to check out something in their basement, and I wasn't going in because it was a creepy hatch, and I didn't want to be ca- be held captive or anything, or risk those kinds of things. I'm like, they could just ha- lock that hatch. So, the rest of the party goes down there, and I refuse to go down there, and I'm just hanging out up top with this with these two people, which inevitably became, they became Rick and Morty, just because the the Doug was giving them a voice, and the one of them just became Rick on accident, and then they just had to become Rick and Morty at that point, voice wise. Uh, and that just became the imagery of the situation. Uh, they kept trying to get me to drink this tea, and I didn't want to drink their tea. When the more they insisted on it, the more I thought that it was definitely poisoned. Uh, so I was definitely avoiding that. And then we hear loud noises in the basement where all the, the rest of the party is. And it's because the rest of the party is now being... they 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 stumbled upon some kind of ritual stuff down there. And... They, it would, I think they encountered something down there that actually was a a, a madness point. This this is a recurring mechanic in this campaign, which is that you can get a point of madness. Uh, if you see something like Lovecraftian, basically, uh, you have a dice roll against like your charisma or your intelligence or some like mental stat to check whether or not you pass the madness test. And if you succeed, then nothing happens and you just uh, you're fine. But if you fail, you gain one point of madness and then one thing from a list happens to you, which is like maybe you attack the nearest person for uh, maybe you continually attack the nearest person for the next 30 seconds or maybe you forget how to speak or some other weird thing like maybe you just think your hands are on fire and you don't understand like, like those kinds of things that are happening or anything you touch lights on fire like weird things like that start to happen. Uh, it's a it's a fun mechanic, and what happened is they saw something and like I think like three of them failed their madness check and all started attacking each other, and the Rick and Morty guys slammed the hatch shut over them to trap them in there, and then just started attacking me. So I'm running away from the hut. And somehow via combination of shield and mirror image and so on, despite the fact that they're blatantly higher level characters and should have been able to kill me very quickly, I just kept not taking any hits. And I managed to defeat both of them and get massively overpowered reward items as a result because they were not supposed to be defeatable by my character. Uh, And then meanwhile, these people are all like, all my party members are fighting each other in this basement and attacking each other because they because like half of them have gone mad at least temporarily uh, and i'd I have to go down there but i have to keep like i have to keep in mind the whole fear of what i'm doing here because i've established this idea of not wanting to be trapped so i be, uh, before i go down i spend an entire turn just making sure i dismantle and damage this hatch beyond repair so the door can't be closed and locked <laughs> Like, that became, that was my character's priority for a turn before I could go down and figure out how to help my uh, allies. D&D is fun. D&D is fun until somebody gets mad for some reason and, and then, then friendships are ruined. <laughs> Everyone jokes about, like, Mario Party or other things like that being friendship ruiners, but, like, really, D&D is such a conflict creator. And it's partly because people just have to deal with each other in a collaborative storytelling setting for dozens of hours and... You find out real fast how much you really like each other that way, and so on. But yeah, I I look forward to doing it again at some point because I miss it. But I'm just I'm so afraid to DM. It's so it's so much pressure. So the, so half the struggle is just finding somebody else to do that. But all the DMs that I, like so many of the DMs I've met crack under the pressure, and then and they themselves want somebody else to DM. It's like it's it's rough. It's rough, but I, you definitely get fun memories out of it. As per the fact that I managed to fill up the rest of this episode with this question, uh, so if you're new to this series, do I normally answer more questions than this? Sometimes, <laughs> it's not uncommon for a question to get an hour-long answer, but other ones get five-minute answers. It's all case by case, and how much op- how open the question is, or how much it, it it's useful as a big podcast topic to go on forever, or if it's like a yes or no answer. Uh, there's two questions that are in, that are pending that I'm avoiding answering because they're just like, have you seen this content or have you seen this YouTuber or something like that? And I'm like, right now, the answer to both is just no. And that's not a very satisfying answer. So I'm just ignoring those questions until maybe one day I see those things and then I'll have an answer beyond no, potentially, at least. Uh, but this has been a Q&A video. We're already over two hours, so I should probably cut it out here. If you want to check it, if you want to check out future and past episodes of this, uh, just go to my Patreon and you know support me for a dollar or more if you want to. Again, there's other perks you can get along the way, or you could just choose an amount that you think I should get, regardless of perks, which is also a thing. You can enter custom amounts. Just be very careful. If you're a new Patreon person, do not if you customize the amount. Some people are running into an issue where they get they get entered the the no reward tier make sure you are actually subscribing to some kind of reward tier because if you go to no reward i'm going to assume you did it on purpose and that you don't want to be in the patreon credits and you don't want to vote and so on i think the people in the no reward tier can still see this q a series because i just posted to patreon with the privacy setting set to all patrons instead of any of the specific reward tiers so i believe even the no reward people can see that but if you go into no reward regardless of how much you pledge i assume that that means you don't want to vote you don't want to nominate you don't want to be in the credits of the videos and so on and i can see that potentially like somebody not wanting to be in the credits and that being like for privacy reasons that then opting to be in no reward or something like that but you know just putting it out there because it's fine if people do it on purpose but if people do it on accident which i'm always paranoid about because at least a few people have then i don't want people to be uh Like not getting what they wanted to get out of this, and so on. But this is the Q and A series. If you want to ask a question, uh, and you are a Patreon member, because it's it is a Patreon specific thing outside of this episode. uh, What you do is you you somewhere in the interface around like my character, like my my name and my little character portrait and stuff like that on on Patreon, you can opt into some kind of separate. There's like a dot 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 or something like they unfortunately kind of hit it behind a menu. But like you, you can you can you can you can expand a drop down menu or something to find the message option and then you can message me there and you can type in a question and so on. And then that'll be in my inbox and that'll be ready for future episodes. Uh, generally, if I see a, a new face that I don't recognize as, as uh, asking me questions, I prioritize them first. And uh, and among the people that I've already answered the questions from, I kind of bounce back and forth between all of them to give every, to try to give people kind of equal chances and so on. And right now there have not uh, there was a couple of people that sent sent me a bunch of questions specifically because last time I said we were kind of running out. But yeah, we we don't have the deepest well of questions. So if you come in as a new question answer, asker and you don't ask me something wildly inappropriate or something, uh, then I'll, there's a very real chance it'll be answered in the very next episode next week. I record these on Fridays and put them out. Well, I usually record them on Fridays and I put them out on most Saturdays as a weekly thing. Uh, This is a little preview, both because the Article 13 is worth talking about in a more public thing. And also because I should occasionally put one of these out as being public to like kind of promote the series and make sure that people are aware that it exists in the background as it then goes back into being hidden for the next like 20 episodes or something. So this will probably be a regular thing. I'll probably make one of these public every few months or so just to call attention to the fact that it exists as a feature and so on. But uh, thanks for watching. Like always, guys, thank you for your continued support. Hopefully the uh, a bunch of idiots in suits don't ruin the world uh, and the internet every month. It's, it's really fun constantly thinking this is going to happen. Yay. Uh, and I'll see you guys next time.